Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. This week we're going to have part two of my coverage of the D23 Expo 2013. For this one we've got two panels and three Imagineer interviews. And in fact both panels are specifically Imagineering panels. Uh, the first one I'm going to have playing for you is The Craft of Creativity, which has current Imagineers on it. And then the second one is Working with Walt, and that one has retired Imagineers who worked with Walt Disney on it, hence the name of the panel, Working with Walt. Uh, so I said there's also three Imagineer interviews that are current Imagineers that I got to talk to directly, just uh, like the three you heard last time when I was in the Journey into Imagineering Pavilion there at the Expo show floor. There are several clips this time from each of the two presentations that I have for you instead of just two or three. I know one has eight and one has seven, I think it is. Uh, so there's quite a few from each one. And in fact, after this intro, the first thing I'm going to play for you is actually the introduction to the Working with Walt presentation. It was a great video and the audio holds up pretty well by itself too, so I'm going to play that for you as well. After that, I'll come back and kind of give you a little introduction to what you're going to hear for the Craft of Creativity, and then I'm just going to go ahead and let those play back-to-back, just like I did last time. Then I'll come back to tell you about the Imagineering interviews, or excuse me, the Imagineer interviews, let those play, and then come back for the Working with Walt introduction to tell you about those, and then finally I'll come back with a little bit of a wrap-up. Just like before... There's no special uh, announcements. Oh, I take that back. There's one special announcement at the end I have to share with you. And there's not going to be any specific podcast promos like I usually play or anything like that, though. There's a lot of material here, and I just want you to have a chance to sit back and enjoy listening to it. Uh, Not that you don't enjoy the other things, but I just want to give you these and keep it to as manageable a length as I can. I didn't get any responses yet to my question from last week about whether to uh, build in a week in between interviews or go ahead and just run them all back to back as I can get them edited and prepared. And then when I run out, if that means there's a few weeks between the when I run out and when I have another one to play for you, then so be it. Uh, I didn't get any responses yet on which way to do that, so I'm still looking for those. But if I don't get any, then just so you know, for the time being, I'm going to try out building in a week in between uh, the end of one interview and the beginning of the next one, which would mean that there would be a plan to have no regular show next week. So that's all I'm going to give you for an intro right now, and uh, enjoy the audio from part two of the D23 Expo 2013. Society is always a steady thing with the two daughters. So we'd start out and try to go someplace with, you know, different things. And I would take them to the merry-go-round and I took them different places. And as I'd sit there while they, uh, they rode the merry-go-round, did all these things, sit on a bench, you know, eating peanuts, 
I felt that there should be something built, some kind of a, a amusement enterprise built where the parents and the children could uh, have fun together. It all started from a daddy with two daughters wondering where he could take them, where he could have a little fun with them too. Is your birthday coming? Okay. You could go anywhere. Where would you want to go? Why don't we go? Now. Today. I'm being, I'm being serious. Are we going? We're leaving today to go to Disneyland. Are you joking? No, I'm not joking. <laughs> yes, no. we're going. I love you. I love you too. There are certain things that we look forward to that bring joy into our life. You know, we have holidays and birthdays and, and parties and friendships. And I think, you know, amongst them are experiences in our Disney parks. People really look forward to that. That's something that they can share together. That's something that they can spend time together doing. It's Disneyland. It's, it's more than a place. It's a feeling. It's, it's an experience. So it's permission to be a kid for an adult. It's permission to not to worry about homework or any challenge that you may have as a kid. There's a child of all of us, and Walt Disney, uh, he knew that, and he understood the importance of that in not losing the qualities of that child as you go through life and as you get older. And, and uh, the child is that secret to optimism, to hope, to fun, to just really seeing how amazing the world is. The common spirit of the groups of people that come together to do this is a clear sense of the opportunity that we have to do extraordinary things, but to do things that have great impact upon people. We all here have a passion for um, uh, creating experiences and sharing that with people and sharing the challenges and the opportunities to create that. I think that that's sort of the, the special bond that all the Imagineers find interesting and unique ways to really sort of achieve some very special moments for our guests. We're making happiness in, in kids and families and many people's lives all around the world. The stories we tell and the experiences we create become part of the family memories for millions of people. And so in some small way, each and every one of us is part of each of our guests' lives and making them a little better, a little happier. We want to create something that's going to touch people emotionally in some ways, and they're going to go, wow, that was so great, I want to go back again, I want to tell my friends, and I'm, they're going to go back and they're going to tell their friends, and how do we do that? Create something that makes them laugh or think or cry. I think Imaginary has really stayed pretty much the same in the creative process. We do it with love, we do it with heart, we do it with soul. And we also create these all-inclusive experiences that you can visit, enjoy, and forget about your worries and troubles for the day. Walt was a storyteller. He saw that the guests that would come in there, they are literally walking into a movie. And that means everything you put in that part right down to the tiniest details, so the whole thing has to make cohesive sense. We have a history. We have our Disney DNA, we have the history of all of our characters and our stories, and so we're starting to create um, new experiences. The kind of experiences that we create in our theme parks are experiences that people from around the world love to enjoy. The notion that Walt had of a place where parents and children could have fun together applies anywhere in the world. Who doesn't want their kids to grow up to be good people. Who doesn't want 
you to look at the world through the lens of unconditional love and standing up for what's right. If we look at telling the story in other places around the world, let their stories speak for themselves. We are sort of a, a beautiful blank canvas. They're the paint. Together, those two things marry and become a masterpiece. It's really amazing to consider that 60 years ago, Walter's Imagineering started as a small group of people in just a few buildings. And that gave rise to everything that Disney Parks and Resorts is around the world today. I mean, you think about this, there's 11 parks around the world, and basically you go into them and people are acting and reacting the same way. That is really a tribute to something that spread all over the world. I mean, you look at everything that we've done and, and throughout the Disney organization, it's like a true fairy tale. Kids and adults alike are losing sleep tonight because they're going to go to a Disney park tomorrow. From our cruise ships to our hotels, to Fantasyland, to our expansion projects around the world, it really has been an extraordinary 60-year journey, and I think Walt would be very proud. The best part is, we're just getting started. I hope you enjoyed that. This now is going to be the excerpts from the Craft of Creativity presentation, which was a panel discussion featuring Chris Montan, Daniel Jew, Eric Jacobson, Joe Lancicero, Joe Rohde, Kathy Mangum, and Tom Fitzgerald. Now, you heard from at least one of these people in last week's episode, and I don't think I have all of them in this, but those are the people who were in it. So the first three clips you're going to hear are from Joe Rohde, then you're going to hear one from Daniel Jew, and then there's two that are audience questions or comments. And I think between all of that, I got at least a little bit from everybody. Uh, obviously, there's a lot from Joe Rohde, but he had a lot to say, as you'll hear. Uh, I think I managed to keep everything in context enough that you don't really need any more setup than that. So, here you go. What is it about... Where, did, where does the confidence come to supervise these incredibly large construction projects and know how to go about it and you wake up at night and go, oh God, what, what is that process? <laughs> okay, I um, personally, people may have heard me talk about this before I talk about it, I talk a lot, talk about this. I really believe that before you take any action at all, any action at all, conceptual, anything, you have to do this hard work on the deepest underlying reason why this work is going to happen at all, which tends to be some kind of philosophical idea. It's not, I want to get it built. It's not even that I want people to have fun. It's like, this idea is about this. What we're really here to do, the real reason we're coming here, the real reason we're doing this project is this idea. Once that idea is clear, it becomes incredibly clear. That's in, that's out, he's good, he's not, she gets it, she doesn't, this is where we're going, that, we'll never afford that, we don't need it because we can do this that we need to do by doing that. Um, and you roll and you roll and you roll and each step you take, it becomes clearer. The other steps are clearer because they, they hang together and they hang together. So pretty soon, I mean, I don't have to do very much except go around going, good job, that's right. <laughs> because it's obviously right. Because so much accumulative harmony has been built up from the idea that you have to be stupid to not understand what the right decision is. It's really clear. Not that every decision that is right is available. 
Sometimes you literally do have to do something that veers off 15 degrees from the best decision, but you know it. You know it, so you're working around it, right? And to me, this has to do with what appears to be wasting time at the beginning of the project, just talking about it for a long time and not doing anything, right? And then when you get to work, it's very clear. And I believe that, I, I, I really do believe when I'm arguing for spending more money, spending less money, uh, that I have a defensible reason why I'm doing that and that, that I can take that to the bank. I've never met a person who is more specific about the environments that you create. How did set designing evolve into you doing that for these parks and Alani and that sort of thing? Um, set design, theatrical set design, is um, a, a form of illusion where you almost always have this kind of distance between the viewer and what you're trying to do. Put a lot of focus on what do they see from where they are? What do they think of what they are seeing from where they are looking back at what I'm putting out here? So on the one hand, um, as you move towards what we do now, that wall goes away. They're, they can touch this stuff. They can be right up on top of it. They're in and amidst it. So you lose a lot of um, illusionary capacity. So that's, on the one hand, I think you just have to up the game. On top of which, I believe, the information revolution ups the game for us. You used to be able to create simpler illusions because people knew less about everything because there was less information, now they know more. So you have all that on one side. The other side is the same, which is that, and I think I mentioned this before, any design of anything is not just the physical thing it is, it's also this package of emotions and ideas that it's trying to put out there. And as the environment gets richer, you're trying to make sure that even though you're adding detail, you're not adding superfluous detail, that the detail is pointed. It's still doing the same thing the simpler design would have done. All those additional details still have to do that. And then lastly, for me, the subject of animals, with Animal Kingdom, maybe a little bit with the Adventurous Club in the sense that we wanted people to believe that that stuff was real so they would be surprised when it acted like it was alive, right? So it probably started there with the sense of, wow, this is kind of interesting. When you have stuff that really is real, it's really real. I mean, the African masks are real African masks, and we deliberately arrange them like, this stuff is real. That one's going to talk to you, right? <laughs> like that. Um, and then with animals, it has to be real because the animals are real. So I fell into this aesthetic. Um, almost of necessity from the subject, uh, but I find it to be really, really effective. Mm -hmm. And I think as long as you keep your eye on the ball, you can create a very rich environment that is not a distracting environment, but it is much more editorial than people probably imagine it is. What do we know about how to make a place that is enchanting and exciting and usable and livable and buildable that we can take what these guys want to say about what Hawaii is and make a place that is that. And if we do that, which nobody else has ever tried to do, not even tried to do, which I think is politically interesting, um, 
our hotel will not look like the other 115-story beachfront hotels in Hawaii because it just won't. So, and that's all front end. That's all you. Those decisions. Those decisions are made in a month. That's done. And then the rest of it is carry this out. And of course, a lot of you have a subject like Hawaii, and you have a culture like Disney. You have two things people think they know a lot about, right? And you're trying to change both of them. Trying to change what you think you know about Hawaii, none of that stuff is true. And what you think it is that makes this company Disney, much of that is not true. What we are is what we can do. What can we do with this story that we have never done before? What can we do with these people's story? Not our story, we don't own it, never will. What can we do? And these are simple questions and they're all up front and once you turn those knobs, the big machine starts to turn and as soon as it knows where it's going, it does this incredible job. It's incredible. It's like a giant laser beam. You just point it, I swear to God, you could point this at anything in the world. I think you could point it at world hunger, anything. And this whole thing goes, oh, oh, that's what we're trying to do and away they go. And you got engineers and artists and designers and writers and business people and they're all like working like crazy to do this thing but you have to tell them what to do. Danny, you spent a bunch of time at the uh, Disney stores and you were doing something quite different. How did that prepare you for them to make the segue over? Well, I was a, I started at the Disney stores as a senior carpenter and this was the time when there was maybe um, maybe like 18, 20 stores. So this was at the And how many were there at the height of it? At the height of it, well, by the time I left, about a year and a half later, we had a hundred stores. Okay. So we were rapidly designing, building, producing, going to the best malls of America, installing, and and putting up these stores. Um, and I soon, you know, from a scenic carpenter, we started to outsource a lot of the production of it. So I just I started designing and drawing and, and drafting the stores. Um, but you know, retail is, is a little bit repetitive, and so I decided to to try my hand at imaginary, and started at probably the lowest lowest level of of, of a full time employee. I was a show set intern uh, at the time, and um, and just loved doing what I did, and I think that for me, what was really important and has kind of guided me in, in the 25 years I've been working for the companies is that I've just loved doing what I'm doing. And uh, which is a little bit different than um, do what you love, right? Uh -huh. It's love what you're doing. And when you love what you're doing, people want to work with you. They want to uh, offer you opportunities. Um, they want to make you part of the team. And they look after you. And I have many people here on the stage who looked after me. And they, they've been my mentors and, and they've given me great opportunities. For anybody on the panel, what's the most bizarre project ever pitched to you? I'll start. Okay. It actually wasn't really a, a, a real project. I was um, judging, we have this thing called Imaginations, uh, which is a competition where school schools or groups of uh, students from various colleges can submit stuff. And I was locked in a room with some other Imagineers like for a week to judge this stuff. And the weirdest one was this, it was a box. And inside the box was a shipping tube and two bags of, um, of uh, I, I guess it was like some kind of jello, whipped creamy, viscous stuff. 
and a blindfold and a pillow. And you and the instructions were, and the, their idea was uh, to communicate like an alien. And they gave this instruction, and you had to sit on the, on the, the cornflake filled pillow on one side, two people sitting across, and then just by, put the blindfold on, and just by squeezing the tube full of this viscous stuff back and forth, communicate to each other. Well, of course, of course, they didn't win, but I said, we should hire these guys. <laughs> so out there. Okay, what's the weirdest one that worked? Oh, no, that's oh. not, I, mean, oh, I, mean, I know it's a little easier to understand, but it was, at, at some point, sort of going back to what the last guy was talking about, um, when we were talking about how can we do things for a tighter budget and get the, you know, just and do more simpler things that won't cost as much. Somebody came into the, to the pitch meeting and pitched an idea called the Lost World. They said you get in a boat and you'd go inside this building and it'd be really, really dark. It'd be in this darkness for a long time and you'd come out and the narration would say, well, I guess the world is still lost. <laughs> Poodles dressed up as Las Vegas showgirl. <laughs> this could be a whole separate panel. <laughs> I've been a premium pass holder for 12 years. I've been in the Disney cattle drive and seen my prices go up and up and up. I thought the DNA that Disney put into this company was lost. I am convinced today that it lives on in you wow. and in Imagineering. Please don't ever let them take that away from you. Please. You know, no question. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the acknowledgement, and that's what we strive to do every day, so to be true to our fans and the fans of Disney. The thing you care about is what we actually get up every morning to do. Right. But uh -oh. there really are no evil monkeys out there. <laughs> there really are out there. The company is full of well-intentioned, hard-working people, all of whom, all of whom are trying to solve these problems. Tremendous, complex, giant problems of delivering this product to these people for a money that keeps the shareholders the whole giant thing. And you rarely, you see them once in a while come into the company ambitious, self-interested, selfish, greedy people. <laughs> and they do not laugh. No, they don't make they hate it here. They uh, hate it here. Yeah. They hate it. And they are gone within very few years because they hate it because of what the company is really like. So while it may not always be able to achieve what we like to see it all achieve, because we all love it and think it's great, I promise you that all those people, that's what they are trying to do. You know, and something I would add to what Joe's saying is, um, when Pixar came into the Disney fold and John Lasseter came, who's a very good friend of mine, John loves Disney more than any 50 people I know, and he has a very big impact on the company. He influences a lot of the company, and as long as that man wakes up in the morning and comes to work, he makes Disney stronger in the kind of thing you're talking about. It, we are all trying to do the same thing. I sit in these story rooms at Pixar, you'd be amazed at the level of, of how we talk to each other. It is a tough room, you know, it, because we want Finding Nemo to be great. 
And you'd be amazed, and I, and I worked in a lot of live action movies, maybe a couple hundred. It was never like that. There's something about the Disney process, but now also informed by the Pixar process, that makes us stronger and makes us want to be better. Next up is my interviews inside the Journey into Imagineering Pavilion. I actually got to do two people at once who worked in the sculpture department. And so for that one, you're going to hear me go back and forth between the two. And for the other one, it's just a straight interview, just like before. Uh, just a short couple of minutes or so each to kind of get a feel for who they are, what they do, and why it matters to them. So enjoy these in-person, one-on-one, or in one case, one-on-two interviews. Okay, so if you could tell me your name and your role in Imagineering. I'm Oscar Kobos, and I'm in the architecture division. I do a concept architecture. Wonderful, interesting. That sounds like an interesting title just by itself. <laughs> so of the things that you've worked on or that you are working on that you're allowed to talk about, uh, what are you most excited about or uh, you know, most uh, you know, kind of in- interested in or that you want to share? Well, right now I'm really excited about the Mystic Manor, Mystic Manor and Mystic Point that just opened two and a half months, uh, almost three months ago in uh, Hong Kong Disneyland. And so after working on it for a couple of years, uh, finally I, it's come to fruition. So uh, uh, to see you know the guests enjoy it now, uh, it all pays off because for so many so many weeks and months we've been working on it, and now the guests are enjoying it. So yeah, Mystic Matter, it, it, uh, I'm really impressed with all the all the different uh, teamwork that we put into it, and to create a new environment that that doesn't exist anywhere in other parks around the world is a very unique attraction. So that's really exciting to me. Great. Yeah, I've seen some of the, the concept art and models and things for it. It looks fascinating. So oh, I'm, I'm glad you like it. Thank you. <laughs> Definitely. In fact, um, I was thinking it was the first expo where we first started to see stuff about Mystic Manor and Mystic Point brought out. My wife and I came through the pavilion and we saw that. That was the first thing that we saw in there where she said, we have to go there. Oh, so you want to go to Hong Kong now. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, now you can see Hong Kong the city and Hong Kong Disneyland. There's two great things to see. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So what do you love most about either being an Imagineer or about working for Disney, just being a part of the whole Disney company? Well, you know, um, architecture is, uh, is... I love architecture, and I've been practicing architecture for 35 years. But 25 of those years have been with Disney. Wow. So I'm, I'm celebrating my 25th anniversary this month uh, with the company. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, you know, my first project that I ever worked on that was built was uh, Toontown, uh, Mickey's House in Toontown, and some of the other areas in Toontown. And uh, I, I feel like it's, been, it's just been such a great experience working surrounded by all these talented people of different uh, divisions, you know, engineers and uh, special effects people and painters, uh, all these amazing artists that, to me, it's like humbling to be surrounded by all these talented people uh-huh. and that I'm a part of that. And, and together, all together, all our talents, we can build these environments that, that, you know, like to see people coming over here and are excited about our work because we don't ever like get to see a lot, a lot of that, right. and to see people that are appreciate what we do is very rewarding to me to see that, and then that I get to work with all these other talented people. That's 
you know, it's, it's fun to go to work because you're surrounded by so much talent. That's wonderful. I'm sure that'd be one of the, just a great environment to be in. Yeah, it's it's uh, very entertaining too. You know, just, uh, all the all the different personalities that we have, and uh, and just uh, like Walt, you know, how he organized this whole organization of WDI, uh, which was uh, Walter Elias Disney Imagineering. It was called WED at the time. And, uh, and it's, it's like it's kept going all these years. And we, we just, I don't know if Walt thought that we would have a park in Shanghai, you know? And that's what we're working on right now. Uh-huh. So uh, we, the, the magic just keeps going. I'm so glad that we have to, we, and we, we can keep working on, you know, new parks for, the, for other generations and other people in other countries to see. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, and then one more question, and you can answer this in whatever direction you want to take it. However you okay. like it. Uh, what inspires you? What inspires me? Well, I think, you know, like the stories that the movies uh, tell and how people um, love going into different environments or seeing things that normally are not a part of life and like uh, creating a story, uh, just thinking about what could be, uh, you, you can create a story that goes in any direction, it doesn't even have to be reality, and then to, to make it into uh, like a, a, a mini environment that people can, can go into that environment and be a part of it, almost like you're a part of a movie, uh-huh. and you know, like you, you go into the Indiana Jones world, and just that we can create just a, like a little snippet of a movie, you know, sort of like a, an environment, like maybe you're a part of a movie, which is why we call our people cast members, uh-huh. and that they can and, and develop themselves into a little environment, and, and that's just to me, inspiring to me that we can create that, and um, it's just like not having preconceptions, and to be inspired by my co-workers as we interact with each other and coming up with some kind of a crazy story. And we really never know what we're going to do, uh, but it sort of like evolves into something magical. So a lot of times it's just just being open to to uh, imagine. I guess that's what we call imagineering. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Thank you very much, Oscar. I You're appreciate welcome. it. Thank you. All right, so if you can tell me your name and uh, what your role is in Imagineering. My name is Jake Johnson, and I'm a dimensional designer. My name is Patrick Simmons, and I'm a dimensional designer sculptor at Imagineering. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, so of the projects that you've worked on or that you're working on now, whichever you, whatever you can talk about, what do you enjoy the most or are you most excited about? Well, I really enjoy getting involved in the detail, especially when we do a story that involves some sort of historical time period because we get to create all those artifacts the way you either saw them in a movie or saw them in a story and then bring them so the guests can see them, whether it, whatever the subject is. It's just being able to take some of the historical bits and show them off. Okay, so. And how about you, Patrick? What was the question again? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no problem. Uh, what uh, of the projects that you've worked on or are working on, what have you been most excited about or do you enjoy the most? Oh, gosh. Um, well, let's see. I can't talk about what we're working on, but uh, what I have worked on is uh, I really was excited about the new Fantasyland 
in Florida because it's it's just so huge and there's just so many wonderful new things added to it. And then we got to work on like the gargoyles and stuff for the Beast Castle, which is kind of a step away from the cute animated characters to more realistic or you know classic sculpture which was really, you know, kind of fun to do. Yeah, for me, I liked that a lot. That was a, that was a real fun project to work on. So, yeah. Great. All right. Interesting. So, um, you know, Jake, uh, what do you enjoy most about working for Disney, either for being an Imagineer or just being part of Disney? Well, I've always uh, been a model maker ever since I was a kid, so I get to do something I've always enjoyed doing, and I get paid for it. So that's a lot of fun. And I've had to... I've got to work on some really cool projects that involve trains, like the Casey down there. I didn't design it, but uh, Ray Cad was the designer, and I got to do the sculpting work. So I got to take a little bit of my personal outside knowledge and bring it to the company and use it. And then the Big Thunder model that's at the Disneyland Hotel, I got to work on that model as well. And so I was involved in doing a lot of the railroad-related things on that Big Thunder model that you see on display there. Great. Well, wow. yeah, I love that model. So thank you for being involved in that. Sure, sure. It was a lot of fun. Great. And then, Patrick, what do you enjoy the most, either about being an Imagineer or just about being part of Disney, you know, working for Disney? Um, it's, you're, you're part of a big, you know, uh, uh, legacy, you know, and, and, and you get to work with some really amazing, legendary people. I've got to work with John Hench. And uh, through working for Disney, I got to become friends with Mary Costa. And we're, we're, we're like best friends now. <laughs> we talk to each other on the phone all the time. And that's like, she was my favorite princess. So it was like, yay, I know, Prior Rose. But also for me, it's like my grandfather worked for Walt Disney from 1928 to 1942. And he was in the original Disney Orchestra. So... For me, that's kind of, I kind of feel like I'm carrying on like a family tradition. And I never got to meet him because he died in 1942. So I, every time I get to work on something that was a film that he worked on, I get really excited because I feel like I'm kind of carrying on, you know, for my grandfather, you know, his memory. So it's, that's kind of fun too, yeah. Wow, that's great. What was your grandfather's name? Uh, his name was Guno Ramondi. I know that's weird. It's G O U N O D. Romandi, R-O-M-A-N-D-Y, and it's a Hungarian name, so, yeah. Okay, wow, that's fantastic, I love that. That, that, that carrying on the tradition is wonderful, so. Okay, and then the last question for each of you, just kind of, in whatever direction you want to take this, however you want to answer it, what inspires you? Well, I started working at Disneyland a long time ago, and I worked on Big Thunder, and I worked on the Jungle Cruise, and so I got a chance to really see how these things were built and I got to take a tour of Imagineering as, as, a, as a young cast member and so being able to see these things and how it goes from an idea to reality and that there's a people in a place where this actually happens you get sucked into it you really want to be part of that you think hey I can make some part of this and be part of what we do so great thank you Jake and Patrick, what inspires you? Oh, gosh. Um, 
Well, I, I guess kind of like I, the people I work with are really inspiring. You know, we're, we all have a lot of fun where we work, you know, and I mean, we do hard work and sometimes you're on a deadline and, and, and you're frustrated, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we all have a good time there and laugh and, and uh, you know, that's inspiring to come to a place every day where you get to make, you know, this Disney magic and, and, and you get to hang out with cool people and talented, inspiring, uh, artistic people, you know, that's a really amazing job. It's a really great place to work for. So that inspires me a lot, yeah. And wonderful. Thank you both. I appreciate your time. Up next, and unfortunately last, we have Working with Walt. Now, just like with the craft of creativity, I grouped this by person speaking and the main person talking, not necessarily by the order that these happened in. So the first three that you're going to hear are from Alice Davis. The next two are from Bob Gurr. The next one is from Exitensio. The next one is from Marty Sklar. And then the last two are questions or comments from the audience. And that is everybody that was in this one. So I got a good sampling of at least something from everybody here. So enjoy hearing from the people who worked with Walt, starting with Alice Davis. My, my first meeting with Walt was an interesting one because Mark and I had just gotten married. And I was we bought a house and I was cleaning the paint off the wall and, and I wood and I was taking the wallpaper down and so on. And I called Mark and I said, I'm so tired today, you're going to have to take me to dinner. So he took me to the town center. And we were sitting there about to order a drink and who should walk up at Walt Disney, but I didn't know it. He came up from behind me. And he he saw this hand go on Mark's shoulder and he said, is this your new bride? And I looked up and it was Walt Disney and I almost swallowed the glass. <laughs> Shirley Temple dolls and Didi dolls and all these, and I was lucky to have 
uh, roof over my head and some clothes. Uh, so anyway, I met, my friends wouldn't let me hold their dolls or anything. They were, you know, it's mine. So I never had, I made a rag doll for myself finally, and that was my doll. So I was always sorry that I didn't have the dolls, but when I lined up all those dolls and I got to do all of the costumes, I thought I've got more dolls than that. <laughs> When Walt came by to see how things were going, I said, um, I haven't received any information of how much I'm allowed for each doll for, for buttons and clothes, you know, the fabrics and so on. And one eyebrow went up. He was kind of disappointed with me. And he said, Alice, he said, we have a building over there filled with people that do the pencil work. He said, you're to design the best costume that any woman from the age of one to a hundred would love to have herself, have the doll and have it just as beautiful as possible. And he said, they're going to figure out where you're going to get the money. <laughs> and he did. All those and he did. And he said, you know why? And I said, um... I know you like nothing but the best. And he said, that's right. He said, I want to give everybody more than they expect. And they'll come back. And they'll trust you. I'll clap he for said, that even now. And he said, if you cheat them, you'll never see hide nor hair of them again. Yeah. That was it. We all knew that. <laughs> Tell us about... Uh, you know, again, I'm going back to casting. Tell, tell us about working on Small World with with Mary's sketches and Mark interpreting them and, and the scenes, and then you doing the costuming. That was pure magic of casting. It was wonderful. And it was... Um, I went home and shook for about three days because I... Walt always gave you instructions for something which you didn't think you were capable of doing. And you liked him so much and you liked working there so much, you had to force yourself to do that and add a little bit more to it, hopefully. <laughs> and he was, he was always very kind as long as you were uh, trying. If you weren't trying and goofing off, you had some problems, and you better take care of them real quick. Because he knew everything. He could tell long before, like, uh, the only way I could do it, to explain it, it was uh, when colored television came in. Walt immediately said, everything has to be done in color. No more black and white. And the bosses upstairs that were taking care of the money got upset and said, you don't know what you're doing. You're caught charging a great deal of money for things that we could do in black and white for half the price. And they said, yes, but we're going to have a full, a full library of all of our TV shows and everything else in color. And nobody else is going to have it, and they still have the biggest one. He knew 
way ahead of time what was coming. He was uh, absolutely marvelous to work for and to watch his mind going. I remember him looking at things and he says, Bobby, I want half as much weight and I want twice as much motion and I don't want anything to move at the top. Lincoln is very tall and it can't wiggle around. And he says, I have animators. They come back from lunch drunk and I know which one's been drinking because they wiggle. <laughs> A very, very uh, vivid instruction <laughs> as to the integrity of this mechanical machine. You know, a six, a six foot tall guy. But we got uh, got going on it, and uh, I was busy on uh, three of the projects, New York World's Fair. So I took time out, like night, with not only 90 days to think and figure out the whole darn mechanism for the Lincoln and the uh, equipment on the floor to make it work. And um, not until I saw the Lincoln figure actually at the New York World's Fair. I could see what a profound thing this was. I mean, if, if it was Grover Cleveland, I could have gotten all the parts inside. You know? <laughs> 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 you know, this, this Labor was such a skinny guy, you know, and he had to stuff all these parts in the side and have all the motion. But I could see the emotion that it uh, that it did to people. I mean, even me, it's, it's still very hard to talk about today. But again, the look on Walt's face when it worked. Um, the eyebrows were down, the smile was up and everything. And that left me with a great impression that Walt had an idea, was working on it, it didn't work, uh, raised his voice a little bit, we found a design that did work, and he was just happier in a clam. He had something that nobody else in the world had, and he had it first. <laughs> He wanted to make sure that nobody thought of that figure as a robot, but it was Lincoln. And the words were, in, in order for the words to have the most meaning, it had to feel like it was coming from the man. Well, I'll tell you how he did that. You know, Walt would, uh, he had to do one thing, but he actually had two other things he wanted out of you, but he didn't really let you know that. He kind of did that to everybody. Uh, uh, backing up just a little bit, he, um, uh, as soon as I got started in the uh, actual project, about a week into it, he said, uh, well, Bobby, would it uh, make sense if we had a, uh, an actor come in and we'll dress him up like Lincoln and we'll rig up some mirrors so in one shot you'll have... Um, uh, pictures of how Lincoln would move, and then you can take that clip and you can run it on a movieola machine, you know, which is a machine that has a little screen you can trace over, and you can put uh, body joints in. And I thought, oh, that's a cool idea. So a couple of days later, he had me come over to the studio on a Saturday morning, and here's this little setup, and here's this mirror, and here's the camera, one guy to run the camera, one guy to run the audio, and uh, and Royal Dano, the actor, and then Walt and myself. That's all there is on the whole stage was Saturday morning. And uh, he gave a script to Royal Dano, and I thought the guy did a terrible, a, a really good job uh, on his first take. And then Walt jumped up and said, no, 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 you do that over. And I saw the poor actor uh, just sort of shrug, and he did a second take. And a second take I thought was pretty sloppy. And then Walt, again, jumped up and he says, no. I want you to do it again. And then I remember the guy went like, <sighs> and then he did the worst take of the bunch. <laughs> At the end of that, Walt 
gets up, we're sitting on half apple boxes on the floor, and he gets up and he starts leading us in the battle hymn of the Republic. Only he in his mind knew that the, you remember that scene in the New York World's Fair, all of a sudden the sky uh, turned into the American flag. Uh, Walt knew that's what he was going to do. The trick was, he got a very tired, worn out Abraham Lincoln, and the actor Royal Dano didn't know it, I didn't know it, but Walt knew what he was getting, and it was done under a bunch of substitutes to get me a, a moviola club. That's the way he works. You, you lost this formality between what somebody would say, the boss Walt Disney and, and everybody that's working there. Everybody sort of became one. And I noticed that a little bit later on when Walt would deal with corporate uh, presidents and chairmen of the board of very large corporations when we were attempting to sell Epcot, that uh, a lot of people would reproach Walt as Walt Disney, the amazing god, and when they get too close, I even saw the uh, chairman of the board of Westinghouse, his lower lip started to quiver when he got too close to Walt. <laughs> this was amazing to watch, and then Walt would uh, loosen his tie and make himself look a little bit ratty so that you could actually talk to the guy. The brilliance was, how do you get people to work with you when you are that kind of uh, beloved stature? He almost had to work at not being Walt Disney. So he could be the team, working with everybody, and people picked that up right away. I think even people that came into the company uh, kind of knew, they kind of picked up that vibrations after a while. And you would never, uh, you would never really be nervous in, in Walt's presence. After 20-some years in animation, Walt brought you over to Imagineering, and it wasn't too long after that that he asked you to write a script for the Pirates. But my recollection is you'd never written a script before. Why did he have faith in you be able to do that? It, it, it was amazing the way Walt was able to uh, find the uh, talents that we had that we didn't know we had. And uh, for instance, when I moved over from animation and uh, into imaginary, and I wrote a squirrel hat for the first time. And uh, I know this is fun. I like it. <laughs> and uh, the more I got into it, the more I liked it because it wound up being that I get a direct uh, uh, command performance from the man himself. Called me up to his office and said, I want you to do the script for the Irish and the Caribbean. And so I researched what I could and I learned to say, Irish. It's our old Irish. And uh, you're to blame for the fact that we all did that. I, uh, <laughs> I just uh, put on a pirate hat and said, this is the way I think we should do it. Because somebody had done it before, pretty straight, you know, without the hearts. And, uh, Pretty, pretty 
I didn't do it. <laughs> I got to do it. Newspaper stuff. <laughs> Tell us about, you also suggested the song, right? Yeah, after I did the first script, A Pirates of the Caribbean, I said, well, you know, I think we could use a song here. And uh, I had a melody in mind, and, uh, and uh, I half recited, half sang it. And he's flying on it. They get George to do the music for you. George was our mm -hmm. musical director. George Bruns. George Bruns wrote uh, Davy Crockett. Uh, Davy Crockett, yeah. So uh, he did the the, the, uh, the melody of the Yo Ho song in it, and uh, it was a uh, an adventure to, to do this script uh, and the song and uh, hear people sing. Uh, yo ho, yo ho, a pirate's life for me. I think I was about 26 years old and, and we were in a meeting. Walt asked me a question. I gave him an answer. I went back to my office and looked it up and I'd given him the wrong answer. And I made the mistake of a young person. Uh, often makes, and that is that uh, I didn't call him and tell him what the correct answer was. And about a year later, a similar subject came up, and he asked that question, and I responded with the correct answer this time. And he looked at me and he said, you know, the last time we talked about this, you said, well, I use that in my whole career at meeting the creative leader of the Imaginary. I said, look, you don't have to know all the answers. You're not expected to know all the answers. But find out. And when you find out, make sure you give whoever it was that asked that question the correct answer. Really important in your life. You don't have to know everything. There's no way any of us can know everything. Really important. When Walt isn't specific with the directions, but rather gives you the liberty to develop the way you want to take it, do you think that helped the almost increase the creativity by letting you explore the options instead of, you know, dictating what you should be doing? No, he never dictated what you shouldn't be doing. Example, it didn't matter whether it was uh, music, art, engineering, model building, or what. But you just have an ongoing pro project going on, and he'd pop in there, and uh, you were ready for a good attaboy because you just knew you did the absolute best on that drawing or whatever it was. And he'd walk up, and there'd be something on the board, and he'd go, you know, that's kind of interesting, but what if? And he'd make a little suggestion that was not a criticism. And then you'd think, oh, my God, that's so obvious. I, I missed that. And then he'd come back, uh, you know, a couple of days later. Oh, he got it really fixed up, really good now. And he says, yeah, that's kind of interesting, but what if? <laughs> This was a never-ending thing. There was never-anything, uh, and it was constantly urging you on, but never, never with a criticism thing. A few people got criticism if you're trying to get a little bit too much of their ego, and they, they didn't get the picture. The wall was the main ego, you know, and the whole thing. But that's okay, because he's always urging onward these ideas. I 
I, I hope I'm asking the question right, but maybe you already answered it. Would Walt ever give up on somebody? As long as they're trying, would they, would he finally say, you know what, let's move on to somebody else? No, not actually. Um, let's say we build something at Disneyland, we think it's going to work, we get it down there, and, uh, and it doesn't work. It, it breaks or it just doesn't function right. He was not looking for to chop ahead or anything or get rid of somebody. He just sort of said, well, okay, well, we'll just find a better way. And it was never done in anger. It was never done in threat. And stop and think of that. If you did something wrong, you were the guy that made the machine and it was bad, uh, you, you, you'd live in terror. But the minute Walt says, well, we'll find a better way, you go, am I going to go really fast and find that better way right now? He's getting you to contribute onward. That's amazing. And Bob designed the, Bob designed the uh, bobsleds for the Matterhorn, of course. And I remember the first time, still the steel structure was up there. Just the first time, I think, they uh, ran the vehicles around. And Walt came out and he said, well, who designed this, this uh, Matterhorn? And Vic Green, an architect, raised his hand. He said, you get in there with the sandbags and let's see if it works. <laughs> he didn't have to place any blame if it didn't work, right? <laughs> that brings us to the end of this week's show. I hope you enjoyed this look inside the D23 Expo from 2013, and I hope you can join me there in 2015. Like I mentioned, there is going to be a break between this episode and the next one. Uh, so this one comes out on September 6th, the next one will be out September 20th, and that one's going to feature a former member of the Magic Kingdom Corps. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, Future Corps, from the Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World. This is the Disneyland version. Uh, if you're not familiar with either one, it was basically a drum and bugle corps that was in Tomorrowland for about six or seven years. And I have somebody that I was able to interview who's a friend of mine and also who was in that for all but the first year. So I think you're going to really enjoy that one. Now also for the D23 Expo, like I mentioned last time, if you want to hear about the Expo itself and not just hear these audio samples from it, you can listen to the Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland podcast, episodes 76 and 77. I'm going to go ahead and link to those, just like I did last time, so you can go over there and listen to a pretty extensive overview and coverage of the Expo, at least all the stuff that my wife and I got to see since I was covering it for this podcast and she was covering it for Tales from the Mouse House and then we joined up to talk about it on that show and uh, we covered as much as we possibly could and just barely scratched the surface but it should give you a pretty good feel for what it was like there and if you want to know about anything else that we didn't talk about just let me know and I will be happy to share with you as much as I can about it now speaking of letting me know things if you want to hear any of the panels and presentations that I played excerpts from on this or the previous episode, let me know, and if I can, I will possibly release a special episode that uh, is just that presentation played in full from my recording. So if there's any of those that you're interested in, send a message my way. And of course, you can do that by emailing me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com 
or calling the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY anytime, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Or you can go to the show notes for this episode and leave a comment there and let me know. Or, in fact, for that matter, you can even go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash stories of the magic, and leave a comment there either on this episode or just in general. Just leave me a comment and let me know what you want to hear, whether it's something from the expo or if there's something else you'd like to hear about, some uh, particular individual or group that you'd like to hear a representative from, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Now, if you've worked for the Walt Disney Company in any capacity and you'd like to be on the show or you'd just like to share a story, please use any of those methods. Call the listener feedback line, email me, or go to the Facebook page, or leave a comment in the show notes. And uh, let me know a story, just tell me the story. Or if you want to be on the show, let me know that, and I'll be happy to talk to you and see if we can get you on the show. If you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience, maybe you participated in the recent Disneyland Half Marathon Weekend like I did, and you'd like to thank either Disney cast members who were involved, or even, for that matter, in this case, the volunteers who helped out along the race uh, route, which, believe me, having done the 10K and the Half Marathon, I don't think I could have done it without them. And I think, I know even for the more seasoned runners... Maybe they could have done it on their own, but it wouldn't have been nearly as enjoyable of an experience as it was. So personally, I want to thank anybody who's listening who volunteered for that, uh, who was out there cheering for us or anything like that. And I'm sure that there are others listening who would like to do the same. So if that's you, please call, write, email, whatever in and let me know that. But it doesn't have to be about the race weekend. If there's any experience that you'd like to share, please let me know. I would love to hear positive stories from people other than me and my scheduled guests on the show. Now, as I wrap up here, I do want to make one announcement, as I said that I would, and that is that I had the honor and the privilege to be on episode 190 of the Passporter Moms podcast from September 4th of 2013. I'm going to provide a link to this in the show notes. And I got to go on there and talk about my first book, Once Upon Your Time, Seven Strategies for Gaining Control of Your Time Through a Tour of the Magic Kingdom. I encourage you to go check out that episode, and then maybe even leave them some feedback, uh, send them an email, whatever, and let them know that you heard about it from this show. Next time I'll be back with another regular interview episode, so there will be other days and other stories. But this tale is finished. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.